You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Panel, And today I have Kelly Freyden, who has just come out with a book called Advanced Parenting, Advice for Helping Kids Through Diagnosis, Differences, and Mental Health Challenges. Kelly, thank you so much for making the time to be here with us and also for writing this very important book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yes. So I always like to start with having my guests define what the art of parenting means to them. Yes. So so it's interesting as a pediatrician, perhaps I approached uh, learning about parenting as a scientist thinking that there was often one best way to approach situations. Uh, you know, becoming a parent myself, I've certainly learned that the, the art of parenting is kind of incorporating our understanding of children's development and, and their needs, and then applying it to your child and the child in front of you within your family who you know the best. So I think that's where the art comes in, that we, um, you know, the, it's one size fits one when it comes to parenting, because every child has a unique needs. I like that one size fits one. Exactly. They're, they're extremely unique. And you have two, two children, correct? Yes, I have a nine year old boy and a five year old girl. All right. So before we get uh, too involved in our conversation, I would love if you would share with our listeners a little bit about your background. You said you were a pediatrician, but um, how, how did you come to write this book and, and all of that? Yes. So, so when I was a child, I, I had a rare uh, childhood kidney cancer um, called Wilms tumor. And, you know, the experience of surviving that, I was quite young and I hardly remember it. But what happened was I witnessed my parents uh, struggle to cope with the diagnosis and the demands on their time and the stress and sort of the fallout on their um, mental health and their physical health. And, and so when I became a pediatrician, I, I started seeing um, the burden that parents face when supporting their children through challenges and facing these additional demands. You know, many parents 
some of the most stressful moments of their parenting journey are, you know, when they face a new new diagnosis and uncertainty, or, or they have to adjust their expectations to fit their child's medical needs. And there's not a lot of content out there to support parents in that need. And there's not a lot of visibility for parents, um, the, the sort of like lived experience of parents facing all of this, because there's so much on potty training and and sleep training and and sort of typical parenting problems that when things kind of go awry, often it can be very isolating for parents. So that's where this book came from. Yes, and, and such an important work, because I can only imagine navigating that. I mean, parenting itself is is hard at times. So I can't imagine having on top of that a, you know, life threatening diagnosis. So thank you for writing for writing that. And so let's kind of unpack that. And, you know, let's say we have some listeners who are maybe anxious about receiving a diagnosis or who have just uh, received a diagnosis of, you know, of importance. How do you help the parent kind of navigate, first of all, from from just reacting to the problem? And then kind of how do we get that support? Uh, you know, are there organizations that that are there to help and kind of unpack that a little bit for us? Yes. Uh, you know, wh- what I've learned as, as um, the years have gone by is that it's not always predictable how hard it is to go through a challenge just based on the diagnosis alone. Some diagnoses that aren't life-threatening, you, you know, can cause a lot of daily aggravation and and stress like you know food allergies or eczema these are things that often impact um impact the flow of your day and your sleep and your child's behavior and require a lot of attention um so i think it's important to acknowledge it that challenges of all shapes and sizes can have a bigger impact on us as parents and and i do think that one of the most challenging parts of it for a parent is in that space between is this something that requires more support or not? Because um, in some ways, once you've found a team and and found a diagnosis, then you have some people on your side who can help you sort out what to do next and who, who get to know your child and your family to be on your team. But when you're alone saying like, you know, my child's not responding like the other children of his age, you know, my intuition is something is off here and I'm not sure what to do next. That space can be very lonely and scary for parents. But but so I think one of the most important things we can do is acknowledge that that's a common space for parents to be in, that, that most children at some point or another, a parent will wonder, is their development, you know, on pace? Is their growth on pace? Is their behavior out of out of the norm? And that's, um, you can feel kind of alone in assessing this, but you're not um, because you have a community around you of, you know, your pediatrician, your child's, um, if you have additional caregivers like babysitters or nannies, or or if you have preschool class or environment, you have other adults, maybe a co-parent that you can talk to about these things to help calibrate, you know, what are they seeing and, and what do they think? And they can help you to decide if you need to take that next step of getting an evaluation, seeing a specialist, um, getting a a developmental assessment of the child, because 
you know, often that's the first step is deciding to take a step. So, so that's the way to get started. Right. And to, to, to follow that inkling that you have that something might not be right, right? To, to reach out and get that, uh, that diagnosis and support. Now, once you maybe have a diagnosis and, and you mentioned, you know, there, there are some that are not as hard as others, but it's always problematic or, 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 or not problematic, but it, it kind of shifts our, our mindset and, and, you know, what we need to deal with. From there, though, what are kind of the, the, the support that is around? Because you, you talk about, you know, other adults and, and such, but let's say more, more professional, for example, just being able to deal with the kind of the, the mental load of accepting a, a diagnosis that might be, be really difficult for, for the parent and, and, and for the child too. Like what, are, what would be the next step there? Yes, I find that often there's a sense of urgency from the parent in that situation to all of a sudden become an expert, to to know everything, to be able to predict the future, to have a solid plan. Because, because if we can get there, we can feel more in control of a diagnosis that's in some, some ways is not so controllable. Um, so, so often what I say... Um, the first step is really to give yourself a moment to adjust to the new information and to cope with your reaction because it's okay um, to, you know, feel sad, to grieve, to feel disappointed, to feel angry, or to feel like things are unfair. Um, and often, you know, parents don't give themselves a lot of grace or space to process those feelings because they're putting their children's needs first and just diving right into fixing or making a plan to support their child's needs, understandably. But, but sometimes, you know, if you take care of yourself first and think about where you are, you can get to a healthier place to make some of the decisions and to make the priorities that best reflect what your family needs next. Right. And then, and then who, like, who do you reach out to, though, to be able to, to navigate like this, this, for me, this information? Is it, you know, your the pediatrician would, would make sense, but I, it sounds like you're also talking about the parents kind of mental health. So are there specific professionals, therapists that can can help families kind of navigate this new situation? Yeah, certainly. You know, I think in practice, many parents, um, you know, finding a, a therapist to work with uh, is, is often a real um, time commitment and can be difficult and can be slow um, and expensive. And, and honestly, many of the parents that I work with um, don't even don't necessarily have the, the time to jump there, although sometimes it's in the best interest of the parent and the child to, to make that investment. But at least if you can start with talking with your support network as a parent about where, where you're at and where you're feeling and what you're scared of or what you're worried about, that um, opening up to someone, whether it's a professional or, or just a, a, a friend, can be a health a really healthy step because often what we find is, you know, the child's um, development is off course. And so 
uh, a parent might race uh, to sort of catastrophic thinking and thinking about how they're never going to be able to be that college athlete that they were. And, and of course, it's an irrational fear because that's just so far away and nobody knows. And, and um, when we say a fear like that out loud to one of our, our trusted friends, um, it automatically takes some of the power of it away and can allow us to have like a perspective to work with that, that can be really uh, helpful and can also um, release a lot of like fear and anxiety to say some of these things out loud. And, and also what I think, unfortunately it's the, the default is that parents don't open up to others about, about the stress because they don't think other people can get it. They um, don't think other people have been through this similar things. They think they're they're kind of on their own, or maybe even that the child's diagnosis might reflect on them as parents in some way. Um, and so there are all these barriers that keep parents from opening up. But but when once we do open up, I think many times we're surprised by the support offered by our community. Many of us are are just one or two clicks away from somebody who has dealt with something. Um, and sometimes we don't even know because they didn't open up either. So um, I hope that the book will help fo- people to foster some community around around the struggles that parents face in these situations. Yes, and, and so true what you just said about, you know, once we start sharing kind of the the personal hardships that we're going through, we, we, we actually quickly find that there's other people that have, you know, been in that experience or know somebody that has been and all this and, and our, our world opens up as opposed to as feeling that we're, we're alone in that, in that struggle. So true. Beautiful. And so, like, how do you work with parents when, you know, you're, you're a pediatrician, you, you, are taking care of children that have these difficult diagnoses. How do you kind of continue working with parents through all of the stages and to really help them have that healthy mindset and and really helping them through what I would consider somewhat of a traumatizing experience and and you know information. Yes. Uh, so one of the most important jobs I think I have to do is to build a parent's confidence in their ability to be their child's kind of quarterback through this, because sometimes the way that our health and educational systems are oriented, you know, parents feel like in a passive position for accepting the advice of experts, but really the parent is the expert on the child and on the family and what their values and goals are. And so often I'm co- coaxing them to, to own, um, own that power and um, advocate for what their child needs in terms of like at the beginning of a visit with a, with a doctor saying, you know, really I, I'm here for follow-up, but the main priority for me is that we have to address this. And, and by um, having the confidence to sort of, state your needs up front and, and continue to advocate for your needs, you'll, you likely will get better care or care, not necessarily like objectively better, but better for you because you'll be more satisfied because your, your goals are being met. So to, to help parents to kind of gain these at this advocacy confidence, you know, I, uh, the book uh, and some of the tools I fo- focus on, like how to think about what your big picture priorities are and balance conflicting priorities amongst different people in your, in your family. 
um, to make some of these decisions about what is the priority right now for your family um, and sort of how to also, you know, make the difficult decisions sometimes to, to change doctors or schools if your needs aren't being met and, and to keep asking questions or asking for second opinions if you're not satisfied with the care you're receiving. Yes, and I like that about being being in charge and being being the advocate, and and it just reminded me of I'm I'm a, a birth doula at times, and it just reminded me of of birth as well. How we you know we we want women to be be in charge and not like you say be passive and just let the uh, the the professionals tell you, you know, kind of their agenda, but that you have to to ask the the right questions and the right support uh, makes total sense. Now, how do you deal with you know the the kind of the rest of the family, right? Because we're we're some families might have other children at home or maybe, you know, um, other family members who are having a hard time dealing with the information. How do you help kind of the whole family dynamic when there is a situation like that? It really gets complicated quickly. I would say most people, you know, because children children are, are rarely really raised by just one person, whether it's a babysitter or a school or, or a co-parent or a grandparent. There's always other opinions floating around about what's best for them and what, what they need. Um, so amongst the adults, there's often con- conflict. Um, so... So finding a way to communicate constructively is really important, uh, to share information, um, to acknowledge um, why different people may have different perspectives on the same issue. You know, I've had, um, I've had situations for, just to give an example, that um, a mom is very worried about something with a child, say with um, maybe a child is snoring and not sleeping well. And so she goes and gets gets a couple opinions and and the recommendation for surgery. And then the dad is sort of like, well, what are you talking about? He needs surgery. He just has a little snoring. And and she hasn't necessarily communicated all that she's learned from the multiple appointments about snoring in a way that helped him understand the situation. And then now all of a sudden she feels like disrespected because he's questioning her. Um, and, and those kinds of things happen all the time. And it's just... Um, it feels so personal and so difficult when it's your child that often um, emotions can can fly up really quick. But when we acknowledge that, wait a minute, it, he still has some questions. And of course he has questions before his child has a surgery. And, and who's the best person to give him the information he needs? Does he need to make an appointment and also meet with the surgeon? Or is that responsibility going to fall on the mom? And if so, is he going to like listen to everything she's learned and give her time to organize what he needs to know, you know, so, so making it less about who's right and more about, um, you know, making sure communication is clear and expectations are clear and priorities are clear for the family. It can help to deescalate these conflicts. Yeah. Cause I can, I can only imagine how hard that must be if we're not communicating and, you know, not everybody is understanding what's at stake, how, how how much more difficult that must be. So I can only imagine. Um, 
when you're when you're uh, just out of curiosity, when you're dealing with families um, that maybe you're sharing a diagnosis that's that's you know a difficult one, do you find sometimes that there is maybe a moment? like of transition where the parents might be in total denial where they don't <laughs> they don't want to hear this information or they're they might be you know like questioning you or, or such i mean i would think that that might be you know kind of the the transition to accepting first you're you're in total denial absolutely and you know it's a coping mechanism, right? That when sometimes we know that there's a problem, but we just don't feel like we have the energy and we don't want there to be a problem. And so we can convince ourselves not to see things. And I think also because parents spend just so much time with their children, sometimes more gradual um, uh, symptoms that gradually worsen over time, or a child who has just always been a certain way, may feel normal to that family and to that parent. Um, but it's only through um, comparison to other other children of the same age or sort of the perspective of somebody outside the family that you can say like, wow, this what you're experiencing seems to, to indicate, you know, else it, it's not expected. It's outside of what we expect and we need to pay more attention there. And, and, and I think the other part that you have to acknowledge there is that you know, we can't learn, um, we can't immediately learn complex things. And and often it takes multiple, multiple visits and time to really like understand um, what you're facing. And, you know, you need to read about it after. I assume that when I give a family instructions and information about a new diagnosis, maybe best case, they absorb about half of it at that visit. And that's part of why we have follow-up visits is because we know that we're going to have more questions come up and clarifications and, and, and what as maybe parents don't realize that then when you tell the babysitter or grandma, or, you know, they might also only understand about half at first. Um, and, and it's communicating these complex things that are really important. You know, it takes time to do it well, and it also takes sort of bi-directional communication. So one thing that I talk about in the book a little is like, when it's something really important, you want to kind of ask for the receiver of the information to kind of echo back what they've heard and what they've learned in their words. Because when they do that, you can say like, oh, maybe I didn't explain that quite right. Or, or maybe like, that's right. But this piece of it is a little different than what you said, because that's like truly facilitating learning and understanding. Yeah. And I would, and I would think also maybe as a parent to not go to these appointments alone, right. To have somebody else, whether it's the, the parenting partner or a friend or, you know, whatever, but to have somebody there that also is hearing things differently than, than you might. It, I've experienced that as a patient myself. I mean, my husband go with me to a couple appointments over the years and I've walked out being like, yeah, everything's good. And he's like, that is not what they just said to you. <laughs> and it's like, thank you for the reality check and for your objectivity and listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I remember having to accompany a friend, uh, you know, who was, who knew that a 
it was it was not going to be a pleasant uh, information, and and her husband was out of town, and so I went with her, and and it's true, like you need somebody to help you process what you have just um, learned and and heard. So, so yes, I definitely would encourage parents not to do these appointments alone for sure. Right. Wonderful. Um, what other kind of you know revelations or things that you uncovered as you researched to write this book that you would like to share with our listeners today? Mm. You you know, one thing that I would say is uh, there's a lot out there about, um, about parent burnout and, and it's interesting. There is like a literature around the additional strain of, a, of having a diagnosis like children with type one diabetes or children with inflammatory bowel disease, their parents have like double the risk of burnout and clinically significant anxiety and depression. So it's, it's because the demands on the, on them are, are in some ways more. Um, so it just validates what people may be feeling. So I think it's important to acknowledge that the systems that we, we live and work in as parents advocating for our children aren't always set up in a way that leads us to success, you know, like it can be really very difficult to have 20 calls with insurance about getting something reimbursed or to have to wait three months for an appointment that then gets canceled um, and rescheduled for another three months out. And, and so I think, I think it's important that parents realize that, you know, it's work that has value and it's not easy and um and it's not easy not just because maybe you don't know the tricks or the right way to do it but because the systems are not not very good for parents right now so so i hope that by um by talking about these experiences more and sort of being um advocates in our communities we can work to improve some of these systems and and build like communities expecting that children will have challenges come up and families will need these supports. And and in your in an ideal world, what would those systems look like to you? Well, you can take, for example, the structure of um, like an IEP or developmental uh, mm-hmm. evaluation that happens through early intervention. So so right now the default is that you know, we we assume that every child is well and then when we need to have an assessment done, it's going to require um, phone calls and faxes and forms from your your pediatrician and probably 10 hours of work from a parent before you can get to the stage of getting the evaluation. But we know that those barriers, they probably make it harder for um, Harder for people who perhaps don't have the educational or or economic privilege to access those services, right? So, so what if we instead we assume that we assume that you know ten percent of children might need a developmental evaluation in the first year of life, and and you can just get it scheduled with a click of a button, and the systems all talk to each other, and and they'll you know we can facilitate it in an easier way to take the burdens off families. Yes, so let's let's work for that for sure. Because I, I can I can only imagine how overwhelming uh, it must be if we don't 
you know, if we don't have the support, uh, and even if we do have the support, it's still a lot of work. So, so wonderful. Well, thank you. This this has been delightful to to learn uh, about all of this and how we can support uh, parents. And I would love if we could um, just go back to maybe a more personal question, um, if I may. And and you mentioned that your eldest is nine. So if you were to go back maybe 10 years when you were first expecting your firstborn, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? You know, I think before, um, before having my first, it's, it's funny because I'm a pediatrician. Obviously, I know a lot about kids and babies and raising kids. Um, but when I was a first-time mom, I felt... Um, I had a lot of unsolicited advice from, you know, grandparents and neighbors and and friends and loved ones who, who, and I, I was often second guessing myself because of, because of that. So, so I do think it would have been, uh, it would have been empowering for me to tell myself that, that I'll figure it out. And there's not just one right way to do things. And it's okay if other people have different opinions that I can, you know, trust my instincts. Right. And it's it's fascinating to me how we always come back to this trust my instincts. So thank you for that, especially from a pediatrician. I think it's very, it's very important to, to share that. Thank you. Um, any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Yes. Um, I, I think one thing that, um, that parents in, the, in these situations often often feel like it's their fault somehow. We often create these narratives of like, if I had not taken a medicine during pregnancy or if I had done more tummy time or if I had breastfed longer, I could have prevented X, Y, or Z. And, and so just to say that mostly it's it's not your fault. And sometimes kids just have challenges and, and um, you're not alone in facing them. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for making the time to be on The Art of Parenting today. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to meet you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.